Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. And it says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had begged that he might be with him, But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Amen. Thank you guys so much for joining us. It is good to see you. I am so thankful that we get to gather together to start our week in worship. And as we get started, man, I am just so thankful for our worship team. I'm thankful that they do such a good job week in and week out to lead us in worship. I'm grateful that Nick is at work to develop a team of worship leaders. And doesn't Nikki just do a great job stepping into that leadership role? We're so thankful for the people that call Eastside home and serve week in and week out. We trust that God is at work in ways that are beyond our comprehension to draw people to himself. And this vision that he gave us to plant a church that plants churches to transform the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando is well underway and will come to fruition. So if you have your Bibles with you, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We're going to see a really cool story this morning. We are in a study. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in a study that is taking us all the way through the story of Jesus from the gospel of Luke. And this morning, we get to look at a very fascinating part of that story. Lindsay just read the scripture for us. But it's, it's fascinating, but I want to caution us before we get started, because I think we have a temptation, I have a temptation, when we come to these parts of the story that really revolve around overtly spiritual things, to kind of push back and think, that was then, but this is now. You ever think like that when you read these things about demons and angels and spiritual forces? You look at God's Word, it's not that you doubt it, it's just like, I don't know if when I look around, I see that spiritual realm in my story. For example, this week I was at a, spent much of the week down in South uh, Central Florida at a, a retreat, a retreat for 
pastors with seven or eight other pastors, and it was uh, the whole point of this retreat was to help us thrive in all areas of life and leadership. And so I was excited about it. Someone had invited me to go. I think they knew how far I had to go if I was going to describe my life as thriving in all areas of life and leadership. And before we went, they wanted to do a deep dive into like our tr- our personality traits and our giftings. And uh, so they gave us all of these assessments to take. And they sent us a website and all series of websites. We filled out all of these assessments. And when we showed up at this retreat, there's seven or eight other pastors, like I said, and they gave us like this personalized book. And I started flipping through and there's all these like charts and activities and things they were going to take us through. And then there was the results of all of these assessments. And I started like flipping through and like reading these assessments. And I was thinking like, you guys, like I just met you. Like you don't even know me. And in here, you're going to list all of my weaknesses. And I was pretty frustrated. I was like, what kind of thing did I sign up for? But the more I leaned into it and the more I learned, I was like, man, like this is me. Like when I look at these kind of things, like, wow, I'd hate to admit it. But the more I lean in, the more I see myself in this story. That's true of like personality traits and studies like that, personality tests and studies like that. How much more true is it of the word of God, the creator of the universe who created us? When we have this temptation to look at parts of the story and think like that was then, this is now. I'm just going to invite you to lean in and see the way that God, you think spiritual things aren't real. TV start flickering off in the middle of a sermon. Uh, lean in and see the way that God speaks to us and, and see if you don't find yourself in the story. All right, so we are Luke chapter 8. We're picking up this story. Uh, some really exciting times, still early on in the life of, life and the ministry of Jesus. He's about a year into his ministry, a little more than a year into his ministry. He's healed the sick. He's helped the poor. He's uh, taught some of these incredible parables, this, revealing the truth of the kingdom of God. And last week, we saw that Jesus and his disciples, they got into a boat and they set sail across the lake. And the storm came up and Jesus calmed the storm. And the disciples continued with Jesus in this boat to the other side of the lake. So we pick up the story in Luke chapter 8, verse 26. They come to the region of the Gerasenes. It was about six miles east of where Jesus had been speaking. And so Jesus and his disciples, they get in this boat and they set sail to get away, separate themselves from the crowds that were coming in numbers to to, almost crushing in on Jesus. And where they land, the region of the Gerasenes was a largely Gentile part of the territory and uh, not a lot of Jews there. And so the people there were unfamiliar with Jesus and relatively uninterested in God. And so as we pick up the story, we might expect to see kind of a low-key event, not expect a lot to happen. But as 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 always, Jesus will go to great lengths to find people who are far from him. And that's what's taking place, Luke chapter 8, verse 27. It says, When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there was a man from the city who had demons. All right, so let's let's just stop right there. We're going to pick up the pace and go pretty quick. We've got a lot of verses to cover. Um, but when Jesus stepped out on the land, so Jesus and his disciples, they've sailed across the lake, six miles, pretty big storm. They're anxious to get to land. When he steps out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, this story gets kind of weird pretty fast, right? Like this guy meets Jesus who has demons. And my mind, maybe your mind, my mind thinks like, this is the 21st century. Like, aren't we past demons? And and like the, there's this temptation to just kind of chalk demons up to all the things that we can't describe. But now we have like science and philosophy and wisdom and learning. And like, are demons still a thing? Maybe for the first century, but not so much for the 21st century. Here's, here's what we're going to see. I am convinced. I am convinced. And the more I study God's word, the more I walk with Jesus, the more I try to serve him in ministry, and the more I watch how Satan is afflicting his church, I am convinced the devil is trying to convince us that these are not real things. 
Like I'm convinced because I've, I've watched God's people come together under the mission of God to advance his name on the east side of Orlando. And I've watched the way that you have struggled. I've watched the oppression. And it's more than just bad luck. It's more than just science. It's Satan trying to slow the spread of Jesus. But at the same time, Satan is certainly trying to convince his church that these things are not really things, hoping that we might overlook them. C.S. Lewis, the great theologian, wrote a whole lot of books, but one of those books, Screwtape Letters, is really an allegory about the way that Satan and demons are trying to derail the mission of the kingdom of God. And he says this, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. So like there's two different ways that we can think about demons and the devil and his work in this world. He says, one is to disbelieve in their existence. Just to say they're not real. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased, so the demons are equally pleased by both heirs. They hail a materialist who would say, like, this, the physical world that we see is the only world there is, or a magician, someone that thinks a demon is behind every bush, with the same delight. And what, what we see is Satan is trying to convince us that these things are not really things, or even, if like, you can't convince us that they're not real, convince us they're everywhere to paralyze us in fear, because his thought process is, if we don't acknowledge spiritual forces and spiritual opposition and demons as a real threat to, to the kingdom of God and to the church as we strive to advance his kingdom, we'll just kind of overlook it. And it'd be like, uh, it's college football season right now. One of the most exciting things about college football and all football are upsets. You know, when a when a like an underdog beats a really big football team. And the reason that happens more often than not is the really good football team, the powerhouse, overlooked. They didn't view the underdog as a threat, so they would like look on to next week and they skip preparing for the the underdog. I really wish, I was thinking about this last night, I was reviewing my sermon and not watching football. I was thinking like, man, wouldn't it be really cool if like some of these powerhouses would overlook UCF? Because UCF stinks this year, and we cannot win a game against a good team. But the, the principle is true. These really these powerhouses, if they don't give enough credit to the underdogs, they get surprised, and they get defeated, and they get embarrassed, and everything gets sidetracked. So here, as we stop at the start of the story, we have to first and foremost acknowledge that the spiritual opposition in the world is real. And that it wasn't something just reserved for the first century, but also for the 21st century. Because the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus, and we have it in our Bibles, the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, to a a group of first century believers and a church gathered not so different than ours, he said this, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And what he's doing is he's warning them. He's going to kind of go through the different elements of spiritual armament that we should wear in Christ. But he say, as he introduces it, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That the devil is, in fact, scheming of how he can sidetrack the people of God from the purpose of God. Then he goes on, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Like, our, our fight is not against people we see. Like, we are fighting for our enemies, not fighting our enemies. Our fight is against spiritual authorities, but against rulers. So he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
And so from the Old Testament, but even more so in the New Testament, as the kingdom of God begins to advance and Jesus comes and he begins teaching and preaching and people are flocking to him in crowds, they're crushing in on him because they want to hear what he has to say. They want to watch him perform miracles. They want to get these insights into the kingdom of God beginning to advance. Satan shows up with all of his force to do anything he can to slow the spread of the kingdom of God. And Paul writes to the church after the death and the resurrection of Jesus and says, if it was that way with Jesus, it's going to be that way with the church. As we get busy about the work of God in our life as individuals and corporately as a church, Satan is going to throw everything he can at us to try to sidetrack us from advancing the kingdom. And it's true corporately as a church, but it's also true like in your personal life. Like in your family life, if you're trying to raise kids, like you know Satan is hard at work trying to sidetrack you from leading your kids to love Jesus. If you're trying to honor God in a relationship, a dating relationship or a marriage relationship, or God, God or Satan is hard at work trying to sidetrack you to sow seeds of discontentment and doubt and discouragement in your life. He's trying to convince you that God is not true. It's the same thing he's been doing when he showed up in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3 shows up and God has given Adam and Eve everything they need to flourish in life. And Satan shows up and he says, can God really be trusted? He just sows those small seeds of doubt and so he does today. And here we see this man that Jesus meets as Jesus is on his mission to build his kingdom. Even as Jesus is trying to get away to rest and recover, this man is plagued by demons. The demons have taken over his life. Demons are it just the theological definition are evil angels who have sinned against God now continually work evil in the world. So as God has an army of angels that are working to advance his cause, Satan is at war with God and has his own army. They're the spiritual forces that work against us. They hate God. They hate his church. And they want to keep us from le- leading a life that brings God honor and glory. And so certainly, we can be certain of this, that there is in fact a spiritual realm and a spiritual reality. And even if you can't see the demons, like you, you can see the effects of the demons. It's just like, at a surface level, it's just like when someone says like, well, how can I believe that there's a spiritual realm? It's like, well, do you believe in gravity? And they're like, well, of course I believe in gravity. That's science. It's like, well, have you ever seen science? Like, no. Have you seen the effects of it? Like, well, I felt it, right? When I fall, you can feel and see the effects of Satan's work in the world. It was evident in this man's life. So when Jesus stepped out on land, there he met him. There met a man. There he met a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, for a long time, this man had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but he had lived among the tombs. So like this guy's life was a mess. He was naked. He was, he was separated from his people uh, because of the demons. He was not living with the living. He was living among the dead. Uh, he was homeless. This guy's life was a mess. He was falling apart in every way. He had no dignity, he had no home, and he had no friends. And here's what we realize, that we are waging war against the same forces today. At the very least, I was convicted of this this week, even if we aren't waging war against those forces, they are absolutely waging war against us. Like, if Satan is trying to convince us that he is not a real threat, like if Satan just showed up and these demons were visible and they just, man, like if we were here gathering for worship and praising God and this big grueling demon showed up, we would all circle up and go to war against it, right? But Satan is trying to convince us that these forces are not real. How stupid, how silly, so that we will just kind of settle in and grow complacent. But we see the effects of it in our life. When you struggle with, and again, not everything is an effect, an attack of Satan, but when you see like, you're constantly trying to root yourself in Christ and you just continue to be paralyzed by fear and anxiety. Like, has that ever been part of your story? 
like just overwhelmed with fear, like you know that God is a good God, you know that he is gracious, and that he has your eternity secure in him, but just like you're just paralyzed with fear and anxiety, it just seems like you can't escape it. Maybe you're trying to fight a physical, a spiritual problem with physical effort. Maybe you see it, the, the, see it in doubt. You doubt in God like you know God, you know too much about God to really doubt his existence, but you just doubt that he cares. And it's just Satan sowing those same seeds of doubt in your mind that tripped up Adam and Eve in the garden. Or fear or confusion or sickness or envy or pride or slander or any other means that's working to sidetrack you from the kingdom of God in your life. Man, we, even if we can't see the demons, we can see the effects of the enemy at play. And maybe it's just something as simple, and my fear is in the church, in the American church, is complacency with Jesus. Like, because if we don't realize how real our enemy is, we don't live with urgency and zeal, and we settle into this, this complacency. Where maybe we even gather together to learn a lot about God, but what we're going to see is that knowing a lot about God is not enough to win the war. Like the demons knew a lot about Jesus. In fact, it goes on and says this. It says, when the demons saw Jesus, verse 28, it says, he cried out and he fell down before him and he said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Like this demon knew who Jesus was. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and he would be driven out by the demon into the desert. And so what we see is like knowing about Jesus is not enough. Like it's a good start, but it, will, it falls far short of knowing Jesus himself and, and surrendering to Jesus. This demon had a, a better theology than probably many of us had. When he saw Jesus, he recognized Jesus for who he was. This demon knew Jesus better than those who were closest to Jesus at the time. Because just a few hours before, in the middle of a lake, when the storm was surging, the disciples with the king of kings, and the creator of the universe, in their boat were afraid that they were going to drown. But here, the moment the demon lays eyes on Jesus, he just, he just falls before him and he says, Jesus, you are the son of the most high God. It's so important to know about Jesus, but knowing about Jesus falls far short. What we're going to see is that we're only saved and set free when we surrender to Jesus. The demon knew who Jesus was better than most, but the demon was obstinate and would not surrender to Jesus. And I am so grateful that we get the opportunity to gather together as a church every week. Like, this time is so important. I would suggest that you cannot faithfully follow Jesus without gathering consistently and faithfully with a group of believers. That's not my word. That's whoever wrote Hebrews, right? Like, let's not give up meeting together. But this is just the start. Like, and we are so intentional. I'm so thankful for Nick and our worship team. We are so intentional with this time because we want to develop rhythms in this worship service that remind us of God's goodness and his faithfulness towards us, but will encourage us to live a faithful life with him. And so we make much of God when we sing songs. We confess our sins and we repent corporately and individually. We take communion to remind us of God's grace, his sacrifice on the cross. We sit under the authority of his word, trusting that he will teach and instruct us. But this is just the start. Like the Bible says, if we're going to do spiritual things, we need spiritual power. We've got to keep in step with the Spirit. Jesus himself would say, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, what, daily, and follow me. Like if we're going to win the war against spiritual opposition in our life and as a church, it's going to take daily devotion to Jesus, time with him, sitting with him, spending time in his word, praying that his Spirit would convict us and empower us and sanctify us, that he would transform us from the inside out. It's going to take spiritual power to win spiritual victories. 
Because even this guy had tried everything he could, conventional methods, to win the war against the demon that destroyed his life. Did you see where it says he was kept under guard, he was bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon? They tried, they tried everything they could, conventional method, to win the war, but nothing works. They could not control the effects of the enemy on this man's life. And maybe that's where you feel. Like you love Jesus and you want to celebrate Jesus and you want to see him working in your life and through your life and you've tried, it feels like you've tried everything, but you can't overcome the anxiety, you can't overcome depression, you can't win the war against sin. It leaves you feeling alone and exhausted like you're just constantly beat up. My encouragement to you is to try to fight spiritual war with spiritual power. Galatians chapter 5 says, if, we, if, we're saved, if we're saved by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us walk daily with Jesus, trusting that Jesus will go to war on our behalf. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. This guy, for as long as he can remember, has been naked, living among the tombs. Life is a wreck, completely destroyed. Verse 30, Jesus shows up, he steps out of the boat, and he asks him, what is your name? And the demon answered, Legion, for we, for many demons had entered him. And so this man was just his whole life, under the authority of the dominion of Satan. Verse 31, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on a hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. The herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. You can imagine the scene like this. The, the demons just come rushing out of the man. They, they inhabit the pigs. The pigs rush down the bank. They drown. It's just this massive scene. Verse 35, the people went to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man. Here's, here's what's so fascinating. They found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. This was probably the first time that they had ever seen this man wearing clothes, right? Like, he was sane, and he was in his right mind, and he was sitting with Jesus. And it's just this really incredible story. In fact, it's, it's a crazy scene. But what we see is Jesus is setting the man free from the control of the enemy and immediately goes to work putting his life back together. He didn't set him free and send him on his way. He invited him in and he began to restore him. And it seems like it's this dramatic scene, but that's exactly what Jesus does when, he puts, when we put our faith in him and we surrender to Jesus. He sets us free from Satan's dominion, domain, and then he goes to work putting our life back together. Last week, week ago, I was in the book of Colossians in my prayer time, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. If not, you can just listen as I read, because Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he says this in verse 13, he says, he, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is this little verse tucked into the, the introductory section of the book of Colossians, but what he's saying is when we put our faith in Jesus, when we surrender to him, he transfers us from the domain of darkness where we are under Satan's dominion, enslaved to our sin, enslaved to Satan. And he moves us from this kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of his beloved son, that we get to live life with Jesus. And it's not going to be on the screen, but listen to what he says in the very next chapter, chapter 2. He says, see to it, verse 8, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. What Paul's saying to the church is, you understood what Jesus has done for you, at least in, like, at least in, in part. You have understood that Jesus has set you free, moving you from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of light. Now, don't let anyone convince you that's not a big deal. Like, don't let anyone try to belittle the work that Jesus is doing in your midst. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He just continues to say there's a spiritual work that Jesus is doing in you through his spirit as he sanctifies you and saves you. Uh, having been buried with him in baptism, there's your surrender, in which you also raise with him through faith and powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your f- flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against it with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, so he saved you. And then he finishes his thought with this. He says, he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, triumphing them in him. And like what Paul says in Colossians is the same thing that happened to that demon, that man that was saved from the demon, that was just this massive display where Jesus publicly triumphed over the spiritual forces waging war against him. He has done the same thing in each and every one of us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Something incredibly significant takes place when we begin to surrender to Jesus, and we can't let the world convince us it's not a big deal. There's something else that goes on here, and I think it's fascinating when they come out to see Jesus, they, when they come out to see the man, see what happened, they find the man sitting at Jesus' feet. And then it says this. It says, clothed and in his right mind. Like this man that had been naked for most of his life, for as long as the demons had afflicted him, he's now sitting with Jesus and he's clothed. And I have to speculate here. Can I put the Bible down for just a second because we don't know for sure. But like, I wonder if it's not Jesus' robe the man is wearing. Like, where else would he have gotten it? Like, he certainly didn't have it in a closet sitting on the sideline. The guy had been naked for as long as he could remember, and no shame, no dignity. He didn't go to the tombs and take it off a dead man, because that's disgusting. <sighs> Hope not. But I wonder if Jesus didn't give him his robe. He took care of his spiritual needs, and then he began to take care of his physical needs. And it, may, it reminded me of a passage from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. It won't be on your screen, because I just thought of this as I was coming up here. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in him, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Like, that's who Jesus is. Like, so the story starts pretty grim, that Jesus meets this man, he steps out of the man's possessed by a demon, his life is a disaster, he's got no hope, he's tried everything he can to set himself free, or at least to try to control the effects of the enemy in his life, and the, he just continued to break through and continue to ruin his life and destroy his life, but the moment he meets Jesus, and something in him wants to surrender to Jesus, Jesus sets him free from the effects of the demon, the domain of darkness, and transfer to the kingdom of his son. He heals him physically, and then he heals him spiritually. And Jesus, I'm assuming, I don't know, put, takes his robe off and puts it on him. Even if he doesn't, it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us when we put our faith in him, that he gives us his robe of righteousness. That when we are naked and ashamed and exposed because of our sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that he, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Savannah, it's not on the screen either. A lot of this stuff just came to me as we were singing. He says this, he says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not based on my effort, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Something significant takes place when we surrender 
to Jesus, which begs the question, like, where do you stand with Jesus? Like, I know where you sit with Jesus. You're sitting in church with God's people. But where do you stand with Jesus? Have you put your faith in him, or are you still trying to figure out how to do it on your own? Because I think a lot of well-meaning followers of Christ, God-fearing people, still think deep down in them that they have to figure this out for themselves. This man could not set himself free. But when he surrendered to Christ, he set, him, he set him free in a moment. And we think that if this is such good news, if the gospel is such good news, everyone would put their faith in Jesus. Everyone would have the benefit. But that wasn't the case in the first century, and it's not the case in the 21st century. This says, then the people, verse 35, came out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus. They found the man sitting with Jesus from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. They, and they well, were overjoyed. It says they were afraid. Those who had seen it told how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And so the, the herders were there, and they told him how the demons had come out in the command of Jesus. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from him, for they were seized with great fear. So they got into the boat and returned. It's interesting that they were staying there in the presence of Jesus with the evidence of the power of Jesus in their life, and they were so afraid that what did they do? They just asked Jesus to leave. I find this so sad. I find it stupid, honestly. They're there with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but they asked Jesus to leave. And then I wonder, like, do I sometimes do the same thing? Like when I'm confronted with Jesus and I see his power and I know what he's calling me to, is it sometimes easier just to push Jesus away than to invite him to continue to shape my life? We have to ask the question, like, what have we done with Jesus? Have we surrendered or do we send him away? These people, would, they saw what Jesus had to offer and they decided, this is not for me. And then finally, the point of the sermon, verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, listen to what Jesus says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So I, I love this. I, I really do. Like this is the, I told you the, all the other stories so I could tell you this part of the story. So here's my thought. You are probably walking with Jesus. Like as I look around, I know all of you. You all love Jesus, right? I'm hoping you've put your faith in Jesus and you've given your life to him and you've been baptized. If not, we would love to have that conversation with you. It's important for us to stop and remember how far we've come because when we read these stories, it's easy for us to think like, man, that was then, this is now. But when we lean in, we see ourselves in the story and we realize that at one time we were no better off than this man whose life was a mess. But Jesus has set us free. Jesus has set us free. So what do we do with that part of the story? Like, what do we do now? This man who had been set free, like, he begged Jesus. It says he begged him, can I go with you? The disciples were getting in the boat. They just landed there. They're probably exhausted, but they're going to row back across because the people didn't want him. And Jesus is a gentleman. He wasn't going to force himself on these Gentiles if they weren't interested. And the man said, can I go with you? Why do you think he wanted to go? Well, because Jesus just healed him is a pretty safe bet. Like, you, if you were just healed, you'd want to stay close to the man who made you well. I think there's probably something more than that. Because if he stayed in the region of the Gerasenes, no matter what God was doing in his life at this point, he would always be remembered as, as, remembered as the naked, demon-possessed man. Like, they, he would always, like, he'd come in town and be fully clothed, but they'd say, that's the guy that used to sit out of the tombs naked. He, he stunk, and he lived with dead people, and his life was a disaster, and we've all seen more of him than we ever wanted to see. And he would always be defined as the naked, demon-possessed guy, the guy that was so crazy that no one could control the effects of the enemy in his life. And Jesus said to him, so he was trying to escape with Jesus, but Jesus said to him, return to your home, go back to your town and to your people, and declare how much God has done for you. 
Sometimes the greatest thing we can do is leverage our story for God's glory. In fact, that is why God, is what God has called us to do. Jesus gathered his disciples together in Matthew chapter 28, and uh, he said, put it on the screen so I don't have to flip there. Uh, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So this is after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Go on. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. To these disciples who have spent time with Jesus, he said, your purpose now is to go make disciples. Go tell people about the work that I have done in your life and lead them to experience the work that I can do in their life. Return to your home. This guy, it says that he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is so encouraging for me because this man who had been healed knew so little about Jesus, but he could point people to the work that Jesus had done in his life. He didn't have, he didn't have a systematic theology. He didn't have a Bible college education. He didn't have a seminary degree. Probably hadn't even been to synagogue for sure. He really only knew about Jesus, the difference that Jesus had made in his life, but he went away and he started teaching people or telling people, this is the Jesus I experience. This is where I was. I was destitute. I was destroyed. My life was a mess. I was living in the tombs. I had no clothes. The demons were just destroying me. And I was struggling. And then I met Jesus. Man, I met Jesus and he knew my name and he saw me for more than the demons that were destroying my life. And I surrendered to him and he set me free. And now this is the life I'm living. And like when we read between the lines, the most fascinating part of the story isn't even in Luke's gospel. This demon-possessed man whose story was completely changed by Jesus, he goes and he starts telling people, this is, who, this is the Jesus I met. This is what he's done for me. Jesus got into a boat and left because they didn't want any part of it. But this man goes to his home. He goes to his family. He goes to his friends. Maybe he goes to the people he used to work with before his life was destroyed. And he says, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done for me. You know what I was doing and you see where I am now. The thing that happened was I met Jesus. And a few months later, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus comes back to the region of the Gerasenes. And the same people, let me just read it for you, the same people who sent him away. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 29 says this, it says, Jesus went on from there and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And we know from the study, he, he ends up in the region of the Gerasenes. He went up on the mountain, he sat down. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Think how far they came. What was the difference? These same people had put Jesus in a boat and pushed him out to sea just a few months before. Jesus shows back up, and this time they gather around him in such a large crowd. He gives them opportunity to teach, and he begins to heal. What's the difference? The only difference we know from Scripture is the testimony of the man who was set free by the demon. He took his commissioning seriously. He was not complacent in his walk with Jesus. He wasn't just thankful for his salvation. He went out and started telling people, this is the Jesus I know. This is the Jesus I met. And, it's, and the story is pretty simple. This is who I was. This is how I met Jesus. And this is who I am now. What's the difference? It's Jesus. And when Jesus shows back up, all of those in need come flocking to him. And you'll never know when you share your story, how you're putting position, people in position, inviting people 
to see a miracle take place in their life. Church, we've been invited to experience new life in Christ. Like if you've never put your faith in Jesus, like, and you don't feel like it because Satan has distracted you, you're living a life a lot like this demon. Your life is a mess, but God sets us free. But once he sets us free, he sends us back to our home, to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers and say, you guys knew who I was. Like I was angry, I was frustrated, I was anxious, I was a jerk, stingy, selfish, all those things that were on my weaknesses on my, my personality test. But now I've met Jesus. I'm generous, grateful, calm, patient, kind, joy. The spirit is at work in my life. The difference, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and your grace. Lord, I love that we can look back at stories like a man who was healed from demon possession nearly 2,000 years ago and realized the same spirit that is plaguing him is fighting against us, but you are victorious. The difference is we can look to a cross, we can look to an empty tomb, we can look to a resurrection, we can see that once and for all you won the day, that we are not fighting for victory, but we are fighting from victory. And Father, for that, we are so grateful. I pray that as we look at this this text, no matter how long we've been walking with you, you would remind us of the despair that was our life before we put our life in Christ. But Father, as we think about how far you have brought us, realizing we have a long way to go, you have commissioned us to go and to make disciples, that we would gather together week in and week out to remind ourselves of your faithfulness, but we go from here and be faithful followers of Christ. Lord, you changed an entire region because one man experienced you. I pray that you would use us, a people of God, gathered on the east side of Orlando to transform the spiritual landscape of the city. We love you and we thank you so much for Jesus. It is such a privilege to stand and sing songs of praise. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.